Welcome to the fourth episode of A History of Literary Criticism. I've taken some time off, during which time I was very scared about the pandemic, editing some of my PhD, and thinking a bit about the format of this podcast. I've made some changes, which I hope are an improvement, and I would appreciate any feedback. Today I'll be discussing some sections from Aristotle's Rhetoric. This is the first time I have approached this work, so first I'll be discussing some of the context I was thinking about before reading, then I'll discuss the main points I've taken from the text, and then some notes on my response, including how Aristotle's work relates to more contemporary trends in literary theory. Context. As with poetics, Aristotle's broader philosophical and scientific projects are an important context for rhetoric. As discussed in episode 3, Aristotle engaged in a number of disciplines, establishing biological classifications which would outlive him and which persist to this day. Due to this work, especially, as well as the formalist approach adopted in poetics, Rhetoric is likely to be an attempt to classify, organise and define the class of language called, in Aristotle's words, rhetoric. But what is rhetoric? A second important context, surely, for this work. Merriam-Webster Dictionary includes a number of unhelpfully vague definitions, such as, quote, the art of speaking or writing effectively or, quote, a type or mode of language or speech, or even, quote, verbal communication. However, some of the dictionary's other definitions provided suggest what Aristotle was more likely to be considering due to the social context during which rhetoric was written in the 4th century BC. Merriam-Webster suggests that rhetoric is, quote, the study of principles and rules of composition formulated by critics of ancient times, perhaps referring to Aristotle himself. While the dictionary also includes a specific function of rhetoric, quote, speaking as a means of communication or persuasion, as well as attributing a specific tone, quote, insincere or grandiloquent speech. The overlap between persuasion and insincerity can be attributed to the role of rhetoric and speech-making in Athens in the 5th century. In the Cambridge Companion to Greek Tragedy, Simon Goldhill has usefully outlined the role of rhetoric in Athenian society. The law courts and assembly offer the citizen routes to political power, and both forums depend on verbal display. A citizen's authority and status are forged in the agonistic institutions of speech-making. Throughout the 5th century, there is an increasing professionalisation of training in this process, and central figures in this development are the new intellectuals, often, if misleadingly, known collectively as the sophists. These new intellectuals studied and offered teaching in a vast variety of areas, and engaged in many areas of public life. But in the Athenian popular imagination, and in later Platonic propaganda, it was particularly as teachers of manipulative arguments that the sophists featured. 
The arts of rhetoric were thus an integral but dangerous, even scandalous element of the city's functioning, and as such were constantly set before the public gaze. Here, Goldhill not only highlights that rhetoric, or speech-making, was of increasing importance in Athenian democracy, but also that it was a form of language open to exploitation. Rhetoric is not a language to be trusted, but one which can be moulded and wielded to achieve certain goals. Many of the so-called sophists also wrote dramas, which is another useful context for considering Aristotle's work. In particular, my mind was drawn to the great speech of Mark Antony in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Friends, Romans, Countrymen. While this speech is perhaps a strange context, confusing ancient civilizations and chronologies, this speech is a singular example of the power of rhetoric in canonical literature. Speaking after Caesar's murder, spoiler, Mark Antony's tone shifts between sincerity, grief and sarcasm, despite assuring Brutus, Caesar's murderer, that he will not attempt to start a revolt against the conspirators, Antony's speech does incite a riot. In the hands of Shakespeare, Antony's words not only exemplify the power of speeches in the public sphere, but also the manipulation which Goldhill discusses, and which must surely have been a concern of Aristotle when writing rhetoric. Rhetoric. The sections I will be discussing today come from books 1, 2 and 3 of Rhetoric. Each section addresses a specific element of the art. Book 1, Chapter 2 defines rhetoric. More narrowly than Merriam-Webster, Aristotle defines rhetoric as the language of persuasion. For Aristotle, rhetoric has no fixed subject matter. While medicine is concerned with physiology, and law with legal matters, rhetoric is a manner of speech which can be used across different contexts, whenever a specific goal is desired. While some of the sophists emphasised the need to win political arguments, Aristotle does prioritise the need for truth, but also the means of arriving at such a truth. For Aristotle, arguments must be interrogated from multiple perspectives. Proof of an argument can be provided in two ways. Evidence, such as a witness or document, or the argument, which is the focus of rhetoric. In turn, the argument has three distinct elements. The logic, which I won't discuss in detail today, the character of the speaker, and the emotions of the listener. Book 1, Chapter 3 includes a classic Aristotelian classification of three different types of rhetoric, the deliberative, judicial, and demonstrative. Each of these have different listeners, different functions, different temporalities, and different objectives. Deliberative arguments attempt exhortation or dissuasion. They concern future events or decisions, and their objective is to show that an action is advantageous or harmful. This is the type of argument commonly found in political contexts. Next is the judicial argument, which focuses on accusation or defence. This type of argument is concerned with past events, and whether they were just or unjust. Clearly, 
these arguments are found in courts and matters of law. The final type of argument is the demonstrative, whether a subject is worthy of praise or blame. This type of argument focuses on the present, whether honourable or shameful. This genre is sometimes called ceremonial rhetoric and, as the name implies, can be seen at events such as weddings, funerals or graduations. So far, Aristotle has been outlining, dividing and classifying elements of rhetoric in a style familiar from poetics. However, in Book 2, Chapter 1, more attention is paid to the possibility of persuasion and the elements which are conducive to winning an argument. Winning an argument depends on the character of the speaker as well as the emotions of the listener. Aristotle argues that the speaker must present an image which is persuasive to their audience. They must present an image which is likely to be believed and trusted. Thus, for Aristotle, there are three important qualities for a speaker. Wisdom, virtue and goodwill. And he explains why these are important. Quote, Speakers make mistakes in what they say or advise through failure to exhibit either all or one of these. For either through lack of practical sense, they do not form opinions rightly. Or, though forming opinions rightly, they do not say what they think because of a bad character. Or, they are prudent and fair-minded, but lack goodwill, so that it is possible for people not to give the best advice, although they know what it is. In order to win an argument, it's also important for the speaker to appeal to the listener. The audience's emotions are important, because decisions will be different depending on whether the audience is happy, sad, or any other positive or negative emotion. This appeal to emotion as a means of winning an argument is pathos. However, the speaker should also know the demographics of their audience in more detail. Aristotle particularly highlights that people of different ages are likely to have different characters, as well as an audience in varied economic or social positions. For example, Aristotle argues that people who are wealthy are more likely to be arrogant, while powerful people are likely to be ambitious. Speakers must be well-versed politically, as people will be persuaded by arguments from which they will directly benefit. Book 3, Chapter 2 addresses the appropriate language for a rhetorical argument. And, indeed, the language should be appropriate. Poetic or dramatic language is not suitable for a rhetorical argument, as this will alienate listeners. Audiences are suspicious of artifice, Aristotle contends. Rather, language should be used according to its prevailing usage in wider society. However, the style must be formal, so that people will admire it. Rhetoric today. Rhetoric is an interesting work which attempts to break down and analyse the disparate elements which make language persuasive or not. One of the text's complexities lies in its attempt to coalesce Aristotle's attempts at classification with the fundamentally subjective nature of individual responses and personal choice. In some ways, Aristotle's objective stance seems incongruous with the subject matter. Is Aristotle perhaps a bit naive to think that an audience will always be persuaded by the person who is the most fair-minded, 
or has the best moral character? Is it possible to adopt such an objective stance when dealing with not only matters of human emotion, but also groups of people on such a large scale? This question leads me to think about people or nations who have voted and supported political parties out of fear or desperation, out of a helpless desire to believe that something or someone can help them out of their desperate positions. The sections of rhetoric discussed today fail to take into account the compromises which often have to be made, especially in the political sphere, the sense of a lesser of two evils. People often needing to vote against their own interests, simply to prevent a more dangerous threat. This is a common critique of formalist literary theories in general, but it's a criticism which is particularly apt considering Aristotle is addressing speech which is explicitly politicised. However, Aristotle does address the subjectivities of the audience and their response to political speeches. By taking into account individual responses, Aristotle has moved further away from Plato's loyalty to mimesis, realistic depiction, and argues for consideration of the literary audience. It is perhaps for this reason that the philosopher Martin Heidegger called rhetoric the first work of hermeneutics a branch of study focused on interpretation, particularly of texts. Hermeneutics originally focused on the interpretation of religious texts, broadening out to include other forms of literature, as well as verbal and non-verbal communication. The audience's interpretation of a work is also the focus of reader-response theory, with modern iterations emerging in the 1960s and 70s. Nan Johnson has particularly highlighted the relationship between Aristotle's discussion of pathos and the reader-response theorists Stanley Fish and Louise Rosenblatt. The elicitation of particular emotional responses can also be found in more recent studies in the field of media and communication. As well as individual responses, however, rhetoric also emphasises the public nature of language and its role in the world and society. Rather than holding a mirror up to the world, rhetoric emphasises how language can actively change the world and people. This understanding of literature gives its name to the rhetorical turn, a critical approach within the humanities which focuses on the personal, historical and social effects of language. In rhetoric, Aristotle's focus on style and content foreshadows the rhetorical turn, particularly the understanding that form as well as content, defines the reception and understanding of all forms of language and discourse. In this context, Terry Eagleton highlights that rhetoric, quote, or discourse theory, has a preoccupation with discourse as a form of power, a position famously adopted and developed by Michel Foucault. The social significance of rhetorical arguments, as well as its manipulation, motivated Aristotle's work in rhetoric, and remains an important concern to this day. Finally, to think back to the triangle developed by M. H. Abrams, rhetoric is a work which considers the author or speaker, the audience and the world. While the rhetorical turn may not focus on a work's ability to reflect the world, it is certainly socially engaged, as is rhetoric. Unsurprisingly, for a philosopher and scholar who occupies one of the most influential positions in history, philosophy and literary criticism, 
Aristotle's rhetoric exemplifies the complex considerations which must be taken into account when using and interpreting language in any context. Thank you for listening to this episode of A History of Literary Criticism. The podcast was written by me, Philippa Campbell, and the music is by Purple Planet. My primary source for this episode was the sections of rhetoric included in the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism, pages 117 to 121. Additional references are available on the website. If you can, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast channel. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Similarly, if you have a suggestion of a theorist who could be included on the show, please let me know. The email address for this, and anything else, is ahistoryoflitcrit at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at litcritpodcast. Next week's episode will be dedicated to Horace's Ars Poetica. A link will be available online.